Hello and welcome to Talking You Retina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the critical topic of second eye risk of retinal detachment. But before that, um, the Retina Congress will take place this year in Barcelona and submissions for free papers, e-posters and videos are open, uh, but the deadline is fast approaching March 18th. Uh, If you would like to submit, click on events and Barcelona in the Retina website for more information. As well as that, another mention for the Uretina Mentorship Programme in partnership with Roche. It's once again open for applications this year. The deadline is even sooner for that one, and you must be a Uretina member to enter. It's the 11th of April you need to submit. There's a few steps to it. So if you want to know how to apply and uh, what happens in the programme, uh, we did do a podcast on that. Check out the podcast feed. It was uh, this time last year, I think. Right, on to our expert discussion. And as I said, we're going to be looking at different approaches to prophylaxis and the sort of the the really important discussion around second eye risk of retinal detachment. And it's sort of a controversial topic. So I'm really looking forward to this one. We're joined by um, Alistair Laidlaw, consultant vitreo retinal surgeon, guys in St. Thomas and NHS uh, Trust in the UK, as well as David Steele, who's also with the NHS Trust and the University of Newcastle. They're joined by Patricia Uduando from the University of Valencia. You're all very welcome. Patty, great to have you back. Over to you. Thank you, Jonathan. Today, we are going to focus on the prophylaxis of the fellow eye in patients who have pregmatogenous retinal detachment associated, associated with giant tears or in very difficult cases like a Stickles syndrome or those patients that have some risk lesions in the retina. And it's my real pleasure to share this minutes with very uh, expert surgeons, Alistair and David. Thank you so much to be here with me. And Alistair, we'll start with you. You really have a great knowledge with the Stickles syndrome. So please tell us about the last evidence with this syndrome. Okay, well, thank you, Patty, and um, it's great to be with you too, doing a, um, a journal club review uh, for your retina. Um, I'm going to talk about three papers. I did start off wanting to talk about one, but then had to dig a bit deeper and had to dig a bit deeper, but they have a lot in common. The first is um, what I'll refer to as the Manchester Protocol, which came out in 2023 in retina. Um, first author there is Linton. The second one came out um, in ophthalmology retina, that's from Chicago, and I'll refer to that as the Chicago paper, Um, and that first author there is Kahana, and the third one came out in 2014, which is from Cambridge in the UK, and that has the first author Fincham, I'll refer to that as the Cambridge protocol, the Cambridge paper. Now these between them have got big numbers. So in the Cambridge study there's 487 patients, in Chicago 115 in Manchester, there's 63. Um, so there's good numbers here from which to try and dissect out a signal as to whether we should be doing prophylaxis in sticklers or not. Now, with sticklers, there's the two types. There's the type 1, which is the COL2A1 a gene abnormality. Um, and they have this funny little membranous vitreous just behind the lens. And then there's the type 2, which is COL11. Um, abnormality, and they have a sort of beaded retina. Most patients, they're the two common ones. 
Um, Cambridge was type one sticklers only, whereas Manchester were both, but actually, and, and Chicago both, they tried to do uh, genotyping wherever possible. And I think they're a pretty pure series from what we can see. Now, in different places, they did different things. So in Cambridge, they've been very, very keen, started by a guy called John Scott, who sadly died, but had a long and very productive life. And John Scott started doing cryotherapy. Now, the thing about sticklers is that the retina detaches with an unzipping at the aura. It's a really odd giant tear. There isn't a, a frill with vitreous and anterior retina, as we get in most GRTs. It unzips at the aura. So it's very odd. And indeed, my pediatric retina colleagues tell me that the rest of the vitreous is still stuck all over the back of the eye. So it's a very unusual thing. So what John Scott did was he would do 360 degree cryotherapy so that the cryo burns abutted. In Manchester, they didn't like doing cryo, so they did laser in pretty much the same way, literally at the aura, just behind it. So you're not prophylaxing behind where a normal vitreous space would be, very anterior 360 laser. In um, Chicago, they were doing something a bit more than that, again with laser rather than cryo, where they were treating from the aura up to the equator, really almost continuous laser, almost ablation of the front of the retina. Now, with good numbers and good follow-up, um, they had quite low retinal detachment rates. So the Cambridge paper had about a 9% rate of detachment, only two-thirds of whom needed a retinal detachment op. So about 6% needed a formal retinal detachment repair. Very similar numbers in the Manchester group. And in Kahana's group from Chicago, where they did more broader and, and more perhaps more aggressive treatment, you could say, it was only a 3% rate of detachment. Now, the different studies report different results in their control group. But I think we need to get into the weeds on the control groups. The Cambridge group report between a seven and 10 times reduction in the rate of detachment when they compare their untreated controls, their control group, with the treatment group. Kahana, 27% in untreated controls versus 3% in the intervention group. And in, in the Manchester group, they report a 25% rate of detachment versus 9%. All of these feel to me as somebody who'd want to do something helpful to be clinically, clinically meaningful. But I think in discussion, we can pull things out. Patty. Okay, thank you. So just uh, as a very quick conclusion, we could say that three different papers have robust results on the prophylaxis of these eyes. But my first question would be, what is the real risk of rheumatogenal retinal detachment in sticklers? And how common this syndrome is according to your experience and the natural history? Well, I think, I think the problem and the problem with these papers and their control group is we don't know the answer to either of them. Now, in all the three series here, you could be entered into the control group if you'd had a retinal detachment with sticklers. So instead of being an individual in the population who happens to have sticklers and hasn't detached, who was being treated, you had a patient who had sticklers who had detached, who was being treated. And indeed, in the Cambridge group, the Cambridge paper can mess with your head. The matching process in it is really, really complicated. But basically, 
you can go into the prophylactic control group having had a retinal detachment in both eyes at presentation. They were trying to compare time of presentation and age at detachment. The difficulty is that what we haven't got in any of these three series is a pure group in which you've got patients presenting with bilaterally attached retinas, a diagnosis of sticklers who decided not to have prophylaxis, who were followed, or the group of patients who have presented with unilateral detachment who haven't had prophylaxis or who have had prophylaxis to the other eye. And the difficulty is, since we don't know what the actual rate of detachment is, I think the only thing we can take away is that prophylaxis is associated with between a 9 and 3% rate of detachment in long-term follow-up. That may be fantastic. It may be way better than the natural history. But I don't know what the natural history is. And these control groups sadly don't tell me. Okay, so if I'm not wrong, your main doubts are coming from the control groups. So how do you think it could be uh, addressed? Well, we've got David Steele on, on this podcast, and David's done great work on individual patient data. And I think this is the practical way in which this could be done, because, for example, it was about 70-odd percent of patients in the Chicago group who had a retinal detachment. That meant that there were 23 or so patients who hadn't had retinal detachment when they presented. Linton, it's a smaller number. The Manchester group, it's a smaller number who presented with detachment. In Cambridge, it's really difficult to work out from the numbers. But if you go for individual patient data, you can construct, I think, those pure control groups. And then depending on what numbers you've got, you can try and match them on age at presentation or length of follow-up in order to try and eke out something that's really, really useful. The other way, and the classic way that we, we should say, is a randomized trial. But the problem with a randomized trial is it relies on something called equipoise. And equipoise is this concept, and it, it seems a bit odd until you're faced with trying to randomize someone. Let's say, for example, and I was faced with this on, on Tuesday, patient with an absolutely huge submacular hemorrhage. It was going from not quite equator to equator, but it was way outside the arcades. And we're running a trial, uretinas involved in it, in which one of the arms is repeated injections. And I could not look the patient in the eye and say that I believed that repeated injections were as good as surgery. So it didn't have equipoise, so I couldn't persuade the patient to take part. These doctors who are doing this stickler's prophylaxis, they're faced with kids going blind all the time. They're surgeons. They like to do things. They believe in prophylaxis. So the big groups who are already wedded to prophylaxis, I don't think would favor a trial because it would take them so far out their clinical comfort zone and belief. So I think it'll have to be individual patient data. I mean, the difficult thing is um, that um, we, we, from what you've said, we don't know the true fellow iris. So we know that it's roughly in a normal detachment, obviously it depends on follow-up, it's, it's less than 10%, but yes. we don't really know what it is in sticklers. Is that right? Or can you, could you, could you, Pick that out, a, fellow, a pure fellow eye risk. Well, I can't. Uh, I think you probably could. But again, it's there, there's the problem that if you go to a center where they believe in prophylaxis, you will get prophylaxis on the table with your first detachment. So the number of eyes that don't have prophylaxis in which there is much follow-up 
is uh, are going to be very few and far between. So I think this is where we know to, need to go to the IPD, the individual patient data. The other thing is, so if you're presented with someone, a family member, for example, who has had no detachment, what is the risk in them of the detachment occurring in the first eye or the second eye? And indeed, you then get into the, the issue of the risks associated with prophylaxis. Now, the Cambridge approach of GA, general anesthesia and 360 cryo, pretty uncomfortable for a short period, accommodative loss occurring for up to about um, six weeks afterwards, according to the paper. You know, you are talking about an intervention and every intervention has a downside. Exactly. So just the, the last comment, I, I want you to say what are the final positives from these papers and also, and the most important, if this results and information is changing your mind or your attitude and what would you do with the next patient you see with a stickler? I think I've always had to express doubt with this group. There are two options. One is to refer them to David Steele because he's an expert in all things. Uh, the other option is to refer them to Cambridge if they want to see what are the British national experts. But that is with the advice that if they go there, they are highly likely to be treated because my expert colleagues in Cambridge are very wedded to this. I just wish we had a clearer signal on which to work. I mean, so one, one other comment is so I've got a family which kind of drills this home. I've got a family of seven, six children and the mother. Only one of the children's detached and they didn't have a GT detachment. They had posterior breaks. So then it's a really difficult question, as you've summarised, Alistair. Should I treat all the other family members? And if I do treat them, where do I treat them? Because if they have posterior breaks, it's um, not, not GT. It's not as simple as, as GT prophylaxis. Yeah, on, on the, the it stands to reason sort of um, approach, doing laser behind the aura to stop it in unzipping seems sensible. And the detachments that occurred in the Manchester series were actually, they, there was only one or two developed a giant tear. They were posterior tears. So you're, you're not with prophylaxis unless you were to do old-fashioned PRP um, with xenon light coagulation up to the arcades. You're not going to stop all detachments. It's reducing the risk to an acceptable, acceptable level. Exactly. So we are moving forward to the next topic. So, David, uh, you are just talking a little bit about the judging tiers, prophylaxis, uh, real risk. You were starting from one paper, but at the end, what happened? Yeah, yeah. No, thank you, Patty. Uh, and and there's a lot of you know uh, overlap with Alistair's, but but some synergy as well, which is great. So you know, just to reinforce, just to recap, that giant retinal tears detachments are detachments associated with breaks which are more than three clock hours in um, uh, circumference in the presence of a posteriorly detached vitreous. So there's no vitreous on the posterior lip of the GT. And you know, most are um, idiopathic. The other groups are trauma, of course, hereditary vitreoretinopathies, which Alice has just talked about. And of course, we do see them with high myopia. But I think most people put the highly myopic ones in, in with the idiopathic ones. And it's roughly... 2.5% of all the retinal detachments retinal surgeons see. But interestingly, it's higher in certain age groups. So in the 30 to 40-year-old age group, it goes up to 6%. This is based on Beaver's uh, a new retina database um, data. And just before we talk about prophylaxis, it's an interesting question. But in, a, in 2010, um, in the UK, which is, I would I'd see if Alistair agrees, but we're largely a group who don't prophylactically treat many things, 
about 40% of surgeons were treating fellow eyes uh, with giant tears in, in a national survey. So it's something that people think about. So one of the, one of the first questions I was, um, you know, I posed to myself is, you know, what's the fellow eye retinal detachment risk in a GRT case? So a bit, a bit similar to what I asked Alistair. And it's complicated. So without prophylaxis, it's roughly 20 to 40% of fellow eye um, GT cases get retinal detachment. But interestingly, only about 10% of them are um, giant tears. So in other words, 50 to 70, 75% of, um, not, of GT detachments, the fellow eyes don't get giant tears, but they get detachments from other reasons, which I think is really interesting and, and relevant for the prophylaxis and how we do it. So um, one, just one question. So you are saying that the risk of retinal detachment is very high in the fellow eye, really very high, but without another giant tear. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's surprising, but it's about 50 to 75% of the detachments you get in the fellow eye aren't GTs. They're, 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 they're standard posterior breaks or, or you know, U-tears, um, as we see in, in, in normal cases. And are there any additional variables associated to that really high risk of retinal detachment? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Paddy. So, um, so high myopia seems to, there's a nice paper from um, Nijmegen in the Netherlands on this, recently published, but they found that high myopia in somebody with a GT increased their fellow eye risk. And also if the GRT was more than five clock hours in length, that also increased the risk. And finally, of course, we know that cataract surgery increases retinal detachment risk by about four times in most in standard detachments. And we would expect it to be the same in a giant tear detachment. So if you have phaco surgery, you've got four times the risk than you would have had if you didn't have the phaco. And finally, just also relevance in this, interestingly, if you, you know, most um, normal detachments have got around about a sort of 8% family history, but in GTs, it's about 15%. So there's more genetic factors involved in GT detachment. Okay, uh, any comment on that? Yeah, I was going to ask David, um, what do you think the, the syndromic rate is in this? How many of these, if we dug down, would be genetically determined? Yeah, no, so that's a great question. So on the paper, so the three papers, which I'm going to talk about with prophylaxis, um, there's a paper from um, Rotterdam Group, Jan Vermeer, senior author. There's a paper from London, Peter Lieber and uh, Tom Wilsonberger. And uh, there's also a paper from the Genoa Group who published on laser prophylaxis, and they all restrict their cases to idiopathic ones, non, non-hereditary. But if you look at GTs as a whole, I think hereditary um, cases account for less than 50%. So it's probably, it's difficult, as you know, but it's, but it's something like 20 to 30% from my feeling from the literature. So the mandatory next question would be, they are linked, so you can probably answer both at the same time. So how much does the fellow eye treatment reduce the risk of developing this retinal attachment? And you have commented the additional or associated variables, but are not really retina abnormalities. You are talking about the cataract surgery and the myopia itself. So how would be the prophylaxis done in these cases? Yeah, so... Um... So to answer the first question, so roughly speaking, you know, summating those three, three papers I mentioned that have looked at prophylactic treatment, they roughly reduce the risk of retinal detachment in the fellow eye by about 50%. But most of the detachments that occur after prophylaxis are actually localized anterior ones, or if they do progress, they're usually macular on. And only after, pro- after prophylaxis, only about 1% to 2% of detachments in the fellow eye 
were were macular involving. So you know there was there was to my mind the three papers putting them together showed a distinct benefit from prophylaxis in idiopathic giant tears to reduce the risk of macular involving retinal attachments in the fellow eye. And so the key question which you've just posed, Patty, is, you know, how do you do the prophylaxis? Because you can't just treat them, I don't think, with, with a single band of laser um, at the or- near the aura, as you've as you possibly been suggested in, in Stickler's eyes. So the, there's a, a number of papers on this. You know, the, the London group used cryo because it was an older paper. The, the Genoa group and the Rotterdam group used laser with three or four rows of laser. But in actual fact, I think uh, there's another paper by um, Dr. Morris from... Um, Missouri, and he's written a report of, of suggesting that we should um, do uh, laser from roughly the um, halfway between the equator, which is roughly marked on the inside of the eye by the vortex ampullae and the aura. So start roughly halfway between those those points and do sort of burns which are of moderate intensity, about a burn width apart over that entire area, which not only protects you against GTs but also protects you against other tears in in these cases. And, uh, and I think that sounds quite a good idea to me. I think it's important to avoid the long ciliary nerves. Otherwise, you do get this um, problem with pupillary hydriasis um, and also accommodation. And you should also, um, uh, I, I would treat them with topical steroids post-op and a, and a drop of atropine at the time of the treatment to avoid sneaky But um, um, yeah, that, that people vary about what they do in terms of prophylaxis. Um, I don't know whether that was similar to, to the stickless treatment, Alistair, or... Um, or, or whether they they were just doing retrooral treatment, weren't they? So the, the sticklers varied. So um, the Manchester and Cambridge group were doing treatment immediately behind the aura, either with cryo or with, or with laser. Um, the Chicago group were doing something fairly similar to what you're suggesting that um, Morris uh, was um, was proposing of a uh, equator to aura treatment there. So David. Um, are you going to be doing this second eye prophylaxis? It, for a long time in the UK, prophylaxis wasn't fashionable. Uh, so for giant tears, the next giant tear that comes in, are you going to be discussing prophylaxis or just saying, look, you should have it? So in actual fact, I've always been a believer in GT prophylaxis and fellow eyes. I've always treated idiopathic GTs with prophylaxis and the fellow eye. What I haven't done um, is treated them with a more broad, broad laser, as has been suggested, I've usually treated them at what I thought was roughly the vitreous base area with three or four rows of laser. You know, it's very difficult to say on all these things because you have to have such long follow-up. So I haven't had a case of mine that's detached in the fellow eye after prophylactic laser. But, you know, you have to have large numbers and lots of follow-up. I just wanted to say one other final thing, which I think is something that crops up in this subject, is how quick should it be? So, you know... Um, you know, should you do it immediately? And uh, so sometimes, obviously, the patient's a bit exhausted having the, the first eye treated. But um, the, the Neemingen paper showed that 10% of the fellow eye retinal detachments occurred within a month. And they're recommending treatment, you know, basically within a month of presentation of the, the index eye with prophylactic treatment to avoid this fellow eye risk in that first month, which I thought was quite interesting as well. And a final question or a final comment on the risks of... Uh, doing the prophylaxis treatment in in these fellow eyes? Yeah, so um, again, it's difficult. So the papers have got very little um, uh, side effects and um, adverse events. I did find one interesting paper from, um, from um, again, another paper from Missouri, from Vingelar and Smith, 
who reported rates of epiretinal membrane formation in the in the fellow eye with prophylaxis and without prophylaxis. And interestingly, they found a higher rate of epiretinal membrane in the non-prophylactically treated eyes. And these weren't giant tears. These were just normal fellow eyes of retinal attachments. But there's been this long-standing debate about whether laser truly increases the risk of epiretinal membrane or not. And, and I think the jury's still out, but evidence suggests it's not a big factor. So um, again, that's pretty interesting. David, in Northern Europe compared to Southern Europe, we see much less high myopia. Um, do you think these results are robust to the non-highly um, myopic population that, that we see more generally? Uh, I think probably compared to Patty or other people in the southern parts of Europe where high myopia is, is a real epidemiological and, and practical problem. Yeah, I mean, so we, you, absolutely, we don't see as many many myopes as, as Southern Europe does. But but having said that, it's pretty common for GT detachments to have high myopia. And um, so I'm trying to think of the last you know ten cases I've seen. You know, more than half have had high myopia. You know, so you, you really are speaking about a very specific situation here: a GT plus or minus myopia. And I don't think there's any evidence that they behave the fellow eyes behave differently. So they, I think they seem to behave because similar. The, the Peter Lever paper was a UK paper. Northern European, and that had similar rates. Thank you. So, Patty, um, we're going to move on to your subject next year. So you're going to address the question of um, fellow eye treatment in, in normal retinal detachments. Of course, the commonest scenario we see, most of our detachments aren't GT or Stickler syndrome. They're just normal U-tear detachments. And uh, could you tell us about prophylaxis in their fellow eyes? Uh, well, this is too much to say that I am facing and answering this question. But the truth is that... There is, again, a controversy uh, in either doing or not the prophylactic treatment when there is the lattice lesions and degeneration in the fellow eyes of patients that had a primary uh, retina attachment or not. And you can always find uh, studies and evidence in favor or against and showing uh, better or worse results. But it's true that it's very important how the laser or how the treatment it was done, if it was a cryo or not, it was the whole retina already edition. So uh, what I found interesting is that finally we have a paper that is showing and study which objective the aim was just evaluating and describing the impact of this uh, prophylactic treatment on the lattice degeneration, uh, on the development of retinal detachment in the fellow eyes of those patients that had already uh, rheumatoclinal retinal detachment. And uh, the methods are not perfect, but are quite good. This is a retrospective study. It's a case series of patients with uh, retinal detachment. And uh, they just divided in two cohorts, those patients that received the prophylactic treatment or not. And the good thing is that the follow-up is very long. It's up to five years. And uh, they excluded all the patients that had other retinal abnormalities in the fellow eyes. So they excluded uh, any other causes of retinal attachment that were not retinal And finally, they excluded these fellow eyes that were symptomatic. So probably they are just focusing on the probably the most controversial cases that are those eyes that had retinal attachment and the fellow eyes that had these findings but are completely asymptomatic. Because probably if they are symptomatic, it's very clear that the treatment has to be done, but it's not so clear if the treatment has to be done when the patient has no symptoms in the fellow eye. And uh, finally, they consider another uh, variables, as you said, in the judgment tiers, 
for example, the myopia or the status of the vitreous, it was detached or not previously, or if it changed during the follow-up. And uh, the good thing is that they found that over 500 patients that were included in the study, and uh, they were divided into two groups. Obviously, the cohort of patients that did not receive the prophylactic treatment was much bigger. So probably this could be one of the limitations because they had 350 patients that didn't receive any prophylactic treatment and nearly 150 eyes that received the treatment. But the difference in the risk of developing uh, retinal detachment was very important. So 30% in the uh, prophylactic group against 70% in the uh, group that didn't receive the treatment. So the real difference is very important. They mentioned the two different ways of doing the, the treatment, laser or cryoretinopexy. The majority, more than 90%, were treated with laser. So uh, finally, they found a statistically significant differences in favor of treating these asymptomatic uh, lattice degeneration if they found them in the fellow eye of the treatments of patients that had already uh, rheumatogenal retinal detachment that needed a surgery. And another good question or concept is that the mean time for the fellow eye to develop the detachment was 1.5 years. So if finally we decide to do the prophylactic according to the results of this big uh, case series, it would be that we can take time to decide if we do or not the laser in opposite to your giant tears that we have to do it very fast. So I can see Alistair's dying to jump in here with something. So what are you going to say, Alistair? Two things there, Patty. Firstly, can you, can you just repeat the control versus the intervention rate of detachment? So it's 30% uh, of the patients in general uh, develop retinal detachment. But among these patients, the majority, 70%, was coming from the non-prophylactic group. Right. So one-third of the fellow eyes developed retinal detachment. And two-thirds of these cases were coming from the non-prophylactic group. So in effect, you're halving the rate of retinal detachment yeah. as they observed it. Which yeah. is now, the same as the GT ones, interestingly. Yeah. yeah. And again, this is a question we could have asked about the giant tear group. How were they selected to have prophylaxis as opposed to not prophylaxis? Was it if you came in on Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday, you got prophylaxis and on Thursday, Friday or Saturday, you didn't? Or was there some systematic bias that actually would um, would uh, have an effect in terms of the treatment group or the other way? Are you asking me that? I am. Okay, so <laughs> in the particular case of the lattice degeneration, I would treat it despite the day of the week that they are the patient is coming. The truth is that what I mean is if the patient is not being operated by me and it's just a patient that is coming into my clinic and just he referred that he had a retinal attachment on the fellow eye and I just delay the pupil and observe and I see the, 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 the lesion. I would treat it. It's also important to remember the pattern of the laser treatment that you do. If you are treating just locally or you are considering to do more aggressive laser treatment, 
probably here is completely different to the previous cases that you are commented. In this case, I would treat just the lesion itself around the area around the, the lattice. I don't know if you would do the same. And is that what the paper did as well, Patty? Did they treat just focal lesions? Yes, they just treated focal lesions. And they found uh, that those cases that were treated with higher potency of the laser or more laser had more complications than the patient that just treated the lesion. Yeah, I, th- I think in Ed's paper um, that they, they it, was, it was basically different surgeons did different things. So basically, there were some surgeons who prophylactically treatment and some people who weren't. And in answer to your question about the GTs, they were they were cohorts, so where they started doing prophylactic treatment at a certain date. So I think it was probably true. Um, and although obviously that means that you get different follow up lengths um, uh, on observation. That does suggest that these are actually close to relevant control groups, doesn't it? If if you've actually just got it's fairly random if you turn up uh, to to say Ed Ryan as opposed to Rob Morris, his partner, in terms of whether you, with your retinal detachment. So that's a bit of a random allocation, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's fair enough. I think. Um, did they? So another thing that often comes up is, did they take any account of the vitreous status? So it's long being said that if you have a PVD, you're less likely, obviously, to develop a, a retinal detachment in the fellow eye. Did they comment on that, or have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is a very important point because the the vitreous is very important in these cases. And more than 80% of the patients had no pre-existing PVD in both cords. And the good thing is that it seems that the previous the, the vitreous didn't detach in the cord that had the prophylactic laser compared to the cord that didn't receive it. So you have less chances of vitreous detachment if you do the laser prophylactic than if you don't do it, which is also important, probably in having less risk of having the, the detachment. And did they um did they comment on um on how they diagnosed PVD? Was it a vice ring or was it OCT or did they comment on that or maybe they didn't? Yeah, mainly OCT. Okay, which is, yeah, so yes, and it's been widely published about protocols to detect that, hasn't it, with, with including the disc and so on, yeah. And and what about uh, what about um, FACO surgery? Did they, had they had, had you know, did, did that have any bearing on the rate of detachment or whether they treated prophylactically, whether they had a FACO or they, whether they were going to have a FACO or anything like that? Well, uh, this is a good question. The truth is that even if probably the phacomulsification is the higher risk to develop a retina detachment if you have any risk area or anomality in the retina, there is a statistically significant difference in the group that had this prophylactic treatment compared to the core that didn't. But the difference were not so big. So this is surprising to me. So it's statistically significant in this case in this study, but the difference is not so big compared to the other numbers and results that they show. So to me, it makes no real sense considering the real risk of lattice, which uh, we know that it's probably the, the, the most important fibular retina degeneration to predispose to the retina detachment together with the uh, surgery that is the other important risk factors. So to me, it makes no sense, but it's like this. So Patty, if somebody's in front of you and you're talking about doing prophylactic laser to the fellow eye, how many, how many patients are you going to have to treat with prophylactic laser to stop one detachment? I mean, it's a halving of the rate. 
But if that's from if that's from what thirty percent to fifteen percent, I suppose that's six or seven patients getting laser, which is fairly tolerable. But if you're halving it from ten to five, then that's treating twenty patients to to stop one detachment. What what's your impression of the the number needed to treat here? Well, if if it's two thirds, probably you need to treat uh, at least nine, eight to nine to prevent one. In the asymptomatic group, again, this is a very particular uh, group. But again, if you decide to treat just the lesion, that it seems that it has no important risks apart from doing the laser itself, probably, even if the rate is not so big, I would do it. Yeah. What about you? It's not a a vast effort to put three rows of laser around the outside of some lattice, is it? And it's not likely to harm the patient. So I think your number needed to treat is going to be considerably smaller than your number needed to harm. Um, so I think it's it's probably a, probably a good option. Another thing that comes up, again, there was a paper in the past, wasn't there, about if you have more than a certain amount of myopia, I think it was six diopters, and you had more than six clock hours, of lattice that it negated the benefit of the prophylaxis is that it was that how you remember it no i remember it the other way around that the group in whom it worked were those that were myopic with loads of lattice but this is this is the the paper that was around when we were training so god was a boy and dinosaurs were walking the earth so everything's changed since then david but again the common variable is the myopic eyes so probably this is another things to consider, probably prophylaxis in myopic eyes with a non-symptomatic lattice after retinal detachment could be the profile of patients to treat. Yeah, we, I guess what we need to know is we need to, in any one individual person, we need to have a risk calculator for their fellow eye risk, which will be based on myopia, age, fakia, etc. And that would be pretty useful, wouldn't it? And their PVD status. Yeah, so... Um, because if you look at overall in fellow eyes, the risk is, is about less than 10%. But by the sounds of it, in the series you presented, Patty, it was significantly higher, the fellow eye risk. It suggests there was perhaps some, um, some, some selection. Yeah, the numbers for bilateral detachment are very high, it's true, for this series. I mean, to broaden this out into the, the sort of calculating and, and um, personalizing the medicine of the fellow eye risk, if you look at... Um, Morton Lacour's group from Denmark on second eye retinal detachment. If you're young, male, myopic, and pseudophagic, uh, you have a very high risk of second eye detachment. And they didn't actually record it, but uh, that got up to about 20%, I think. It was you know, really quite remarkably high to the point that you're thinking, okay, well, something risky is worthwhile in presenting that. Particularly, and they didn't throw this in, the concept of the concept then, if you can reliably detect whether the vitreous is off or not with an OCT, you may well find uh, at that point that uh, it becomes very worthwhile thinking about prophylaxis. Yeah, I think you are totally right. And this is a key point, because we have to remember that in this paper, they excluded all other causes of retinal attachment and those cases that have any other findings in the fellow eye. So they are just focused 500 cases with lattice asymptomatic but lattice that's why probably the numbers are a little bit higher we don't know the total numbers of the cases with retinal tangent without uh, this particularly risk and 80 percent 
hadn't the PBD. So you're right, Al. The PBD mm -hmm. status is very important. Well, let's finish it off by having a quick um, straw poll on the individual cases. So, um, G fellow eye of idiopathic giant tears, um, Alistair, Patty, would you treat them or not? I will now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay, okay. And um, Stickler's syndrome, let's let's make it more precise. Fellow eye of patients who've had a Stickler's detachment. Yes. Yes or no? Yes. Counsel and offer. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's, that's a cop-out, but it's, I think that's what most people would do, of course. And then finally, um, let's make it easy. Fellow eye of somebody with fellow eye lattice um, without a PVD. So In high yes profile patients, yes. That's what the fellows are for. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note... Let's uh, wrap it up and thank you, everybody, for listening. <laughs> I, I, I sense a game show format in there somewhere. You're, <laughs> you're, you're teetering on the edge of it. Um, really informative um, podcast. I learned a huge amount and I, I can imagine our listeners got a lot from it too. We'd love to hear your comments. You can email us, podcast at uretina.org. Thank you, as always, uh, Alistair Laidlaw, David Steele and Patricia Uduando uh, for your fantastic contributions. We'll see you very shortly. That's it from us on this week's episode. I'm Jonathan McRae, and we'll see you next time on Talking New Retina. <laughs>